CBS World News continues to bring you the latest news together with analyses of the newest developments. First, we will hear John Daly, then Quentin Reynolds, Don Pryor from Washington, and Columbia's military expert, Major George Fielding Elliott. Now, John Daly. Invasion communique number two, released at Supreme Allied Headquarters in England tonight, reports that Allied forces have succeeded in their initial landings in France and fighting continues. Naval casualties were very light, the communique added, and Allied planes continued the air bombardment in very great strength throughout the day. The text of the communique paints a detailed picture of the early hours of the invasion. It says that shortly before midnight last night, Allied night bombers opened the assault. They attacked in very great strength and continued until dawn. Between 6.30 and 7.30 a.m. this morning, two naval task forces, one commanded by a British Admiral, Philip Vian, and the other by American Admiral Alan G. Kirk, launched their assault forces at enemy beaches. Of course, these times are the London time, six hours ahead of ours. The naval forces, which had previously assembled under the overall command of Admiral Sir Bertram Ramsey, made their departure in fresh weather and were joined during the night by bombarding forces which had previously left northern waters. The channels had to be swept through large enemy minefields. That operation was completed before dawn, the communique says, and while the mound-sweeping flotillas continued to sweep toward the enemy coast, the entire naval force followed down and swept the channels behind them toward their objectives. Shortly before the assault, three enemy torpedo boats with armed trawlers in company attempted to interfere with the operation and were promptly driven off. One enemy trawler was sunk and another severely damaged. The assault forces moved toward the beaches under cover of a heavy bombardment from destroyers and other support craft while heavier ships engaged the enemy batteries which had already been subjected to bombardment from the air. The communique continues. Some of these were silenced. The Allied landings were effected under cover of air and naval bombardments and the airborne landings involving troop-carrying aircraft and gliders carrying large forces of troops were also made successfully at a number of points. Continuous fighter cover was maintained over the beaches and for some distance inland and over naval operations in the channel. Our night fighters played an equally important part in protecting shipping and the troop carrier forces and in intruder operations. Allied reconnaissance aircraft continued to maintain watch by day and night over shipping and over the ground forces. Our aircraft met with little enemy fighter opposition or anti-aircraft gunfire. The naval casualties, it concludes, are regarded as being very light, especially when the magnitude of the operation is taken into account. The reports of the land fighting, necessarily vague at this early stage of the invasion, indicate that the American, British, and Canadian troops who landed on the French Normandy coast this morning to open the Western Front have fought their way nine and a half miles inland to the ancient and important rail and port city of Cannes, and that Allied operations are developing along a 60-mile front stretching north from the Cherbourg Peninsula. Our landings appear to have been tactically and strategically a surprise to the Germans. There have been no reports as yet that would imply that the Germans have recovered sufficiently to stage a counterattack. However, a strong counterattack is expected inside of the next 48 hours. And now for a description of what landing on the shores of Hitler's Europe is like for our boys. Here is a man who saw the Allied landings at Dieppe in 1942 and who was with our troops when they landed at Salerno last September. CBS war reporter Quentin Reynolds. It is a little after midnight in France now, and thousands and thousands of Americans, British, and Canadian troops are trying to rest after the toughest 24 hours they ever underwent. One of the first rules of amphibious warfare is don't dig in, force the action, get away from the beaches. Reports from Allied headquarters and from the German radio, agree that our men wasted very little time on the beaches. 
They surged forward, and tonight the main body of our men is resting more than ten miles inland. It is the first night most of them ever spent in France, and it is doubtful if the Germans will allow them to enjoy it. During the day, the absence of the Luftwaffe was very noticeable. Our air armada of 11,000 aircraft encountered virtually no resistance over France today. But Air Marshal Tedder and General Tui Spots in charge of our air forces will not be fooled by that. They know that German bombers are creatures of the night. They remember that we weren't bothered much that first day we landed on the beaches at Salerno. Nor did we encounter anything more than nominal resistance at Anzio during the first hours of daylight. In each case, the Luftwaffe saved its strength for the coming of darkness. Up to now, everything seems to have gone according to plan. But we would be foolish to assume that the worst is over. If the Luftwaffe follows its usual tactics, our boys may have a bad night. One can visualize them trying to sleep in their shallow, hastily dug-out slit trenches. Now and then, and this is undoubtedly happening right now, a pinprick of fire will appear in the sky. It will grow and grow and banish the night. The German planes are dropping their well-known chandelier flares. They hang there at 5,000 feet, looking for all the world like a giant celestial chandelier lit by a million candles. Other flares will blossom against the dark curtain of the night. And then the uneven tune which the bombers sing will throb through the darkness. There won't be much sleep, I'm afraid, for these boys. But then they've been trained for months for this, and they're in perfect physical condition. Missing a night's sleep won't hurt them a bit. They'll lie there looking upward at the traces that stretch long blue and golden fingers into the night, up toward the enemy aircraft. By now, our Bofas, our Ehrlichens, and our amazing, beautiful 120-millimeter anti-aircraft guns will be throwing up a wall of steel at the German planes. Higher up, our night fighters, the Havocs, the Mosquitoes, and the Bullfighters are darting all over the sky in search of German planes. They'll take a frightful toll if past experience is any criterion. But the odd bomber can always get through. There is no doubt that the Luftwaffe will throw its best punch tonight. However, bombs are never very effective against troop personnel. Remember, casino. They're frightening, and they jangle your ragged nerves, and the noise of them makes your ears ring and your hands feel as though they clutch snowballs. Your stomach tightens with fear, for no man is immune from fright. But our men have learned to conquer their fear and be none the worse for it. Throughout the night, the German planes... Fast Junkers 86P medium bombers with their excellent bomb sight made by Zeiss. The speedy silver-winged Dornier 217, which has a very effective dive bomber break in its tail. And the Junkers 88, easy for our fighters to knock down in daylight, but hard to find at night. All these will be screaming earthward with their tons of bombs. No, our boys won't get much sleep tonight. They won't move much in the darkness, because now they are in what the enemy call, what the army calls the enemy hedgehog defense area, the second line of defense. 
an area pockmarked with mine traps and booby traps and trip wires which set off a dozen grenades if you stumble against them. We know, and our men know, that the real German defenses, the huge steel and concrete pillboxes and turrets, the heavy artillery is some miles ahead of us. But they know, too, that in this area, the Germans have plenty of machine guns, anti-tank guns, and light artillery. But if the Germans follow the tactics they have always used, and the German usually does follow his own pattern of warfare, he won't do much artillery firing tonight. He knows that our low-flying planes are everywhere looking for his gun flashes, trying to locate his batteries. So the chances are that our boys won't be too much bothered by anything tonight but night bombing. It will be different at dawn. You can be sure that by now, German reserves have been rushed up to strengthen that wall of concrete, the famous Second West Wall built and designed by the late General Fritz Tote, that wall that still lies ahead of us, the main German defenses. And when dawn comes, our boys will have their hands full with this counterattack, for the Germans always counterattack. But General Montgomery knows all this, and you can be sure that Monty is ready. Monty is never caught napping. All night long, big LSTs will snake across the channel to unload thousands of tanks, of big 155-millimeter guns, 8-inch guns, anti-tank guns, shells, the heavy decisive weapons that in the end decide the issue. It'll be a long night for those of us here at home who can only hope and pray. It'll be an even longer night for these boys of ours. But the dawn will come soon to France within three hours, and the dawn will chase the bombers. The dawn will banish the specters that the night brings. And you can be sure that these sons of yours will be ready and anxious to slug it out with the enemy they have been waiting so long to meet. That was CBS war reporter Quentin Reynolds. And here to explain to you the scope of our attack is Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. The greatest amphibious operation in the long and bloody history of warfare is underway. But we know very little as yet about the progress which our troops are making on the shores of France. Allied reports have identified only the town of Caen as actually reached by our troops. But it is fairly clear from all that has been said about broad fronts in various Allied reports during the day and also from enemy reports for what they are worth that our troops have landed at various points along a front extending from the Cotentin Peninsula on which Cherbourg stands to the mouth of the River Seine. This is a front of about a hundred miles along the curving shore of the Bay de la Seine. Since the division ordinarily does not deploy for attack on a front greater than 4,000 yards, about two and a half miles, this might seem to indicate that we have put ashore 40 divisions, but the actual number is unquestionably far less, at least at this time. The landings cannot take place all along this coast but only at such spots where beaches or inlets are available and where the landing is not denied by cliffs or rocky foreshores. Such places available for landing are the estuaries of the rivers Orne and Vere and the excellent sandy beaches of the Dovey area, and all of which enemy reports 
have it that we have landed our troops. As Edward R. Murrow has told you in a broadcast previously heard on many of these stations, considerable satisfaction is being expressed in military quarters in Great Britain on the progress made by our airborne troops. These have naturally been landed inland from the coast and are engaged in cutting the railways and roads on which the German counterattacking forces must eventually depend for rapid movement in order to drive our forces off the beaches if they can do so. And the purpose of these airborne troops is to cover the establishment and extension of the beachheads. At least two beachheads are reported to have been firmly established and to be in course of expansion. If this expansion permits the landing of heavy equipment, including particularly field and medium artillery, within the next 24 hours, as much progress will have been made as could be reasonably expected. A still greater gain would be the deepening of the beachheads to the point where forward air bases could be established on the French shore. A, another enemy report has it that there has been heavy bombing and landing of paratroopers in the Boulogne-Calais area. Here, the air distances to Great Britain are shorter, and therefore the advantages for landing as far as air support are greater, though the German defenses are probably deeper and stronger in this area than in any other part of the French coast. It is possible that we have gained some degree of tactical surprise in the West by landing in an area where the enemy did not expect us. Perhaps he expected us in the Boulogne-Calais area. Then it's possible that this new reported attack, if it is true, remember it's an enemy report, may mean that the Boulogne-Calais area is really the area of the Allied main effort and that the operations from the West are an attempt to divert the Germans. However, the events will have to disclose whether this is the case or not. That was Major George Fielding Elliott. And here is the London dispatch just handed to me. The first wounded men from the Western Front invasion landed back in England today, and despite their wounds, many were smilingly cheerful. Some were taken to an East Anglian hospital. I Love a Mystery, usually presented at this time by Procter & Gamble over most of these stations, was canceled tonight in order that we might bring you the broadcast just concluded. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Ladies and gentlemen, the Columbia Broadcasting System brings you the voice of John Nesbitt in The Passing Parade. Should any bulletins of news interest come in during the next few minutes, they will be presented at once or immediately before the conclusion of this special D-Day edition which we have requested from America's celebrated teller of true tales, John Nesbitt. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, for June the 6th and the 31st chapter in the 1944 series of our Passing Parade. The time is exactly 100 years from today. The scene is a schoolroom on a beautiful day in June, June the 6th, 2044. And you and I are long since in our graves. The furniture around us in our living rooms at this moment has been lost or become expensive antiques in the art stores. And those newspapers with their huge headlines that are now lying near the radio set will have become yellow, brittle documents preserved in the great museums of this day... 100 years from now. In their classroom of plastic and metal, our great-great-grandchildren are gathered, waiting for the lesson to begin. They'll be staring out through the glass walls, wishing they were anywhere in the world but stuck in a schoolroom. 
having to look at a lot more historical moving pictures flashed on the screen, hearing transcriptions of radio broadcasts that were given generations ago, staring down at microfilm newsreels showing the people of 1944 dressed in their funny clothes and living their funny, forgotten lives. Now the old history professor comes in, and he stands beside the picture screen, and he smiles around at the drowsy young faces of our great-great-grandchildren and says... Does anyone here know what day this is? No answer. Well, it is exactly 100 years ago today that one of the greatest events since the fall of Rome took place on the face of the earth. That event, young ladies and gentlemen, was called the invasion of Europe by the democracies. On a beautiful moonlit night 100 years ago, out from the shores of England swept myriads of peculiarly shaped boats guarded by more than 4,000 naval vessels. In these boats, there were tens of thousands of very young men, almost as young as you are, who looked straight ahead with awful terror gripping them. Some were seasick, and a special secret remedy which the Allies had been collecting for about a year was given to them. And on many of these peculiarly shaped steel vessels, they were actually operating tables with surgeons ready to perform major surgical treatments right on the beaches of France if necessary. These young men who gazed through the moonlight with their gray, tense faces a hundred years ago were sailing into the jaws of the most magnificent fighting machine ever known up until that time. This machine was called the German Wehrmacht. It had been designed by military geniuses, tried out, improved, and repaired and tested. It was experienced, it was veteran, and it was desperate. But the young men from the cliffs of England faced it silently, and they moved on in. They knew that the stupendous machine they were to destroy had many tricks. One of them was the magnificent Spandau machine gun, which could shoot 600 bullets in the time that earlier models could shoot 200. Another was a new plastic landmine that could not be discovered by the Allied magnetic detectors. These plastic and even wooden mines, sometimes called booby traps in that day, were strewn so thickly that it was believed that a man could not take 12 paces on the beach without setting one off burning oil to float down rivers, pipes to carry it out to the surface of the sea if necessary, so that incendiary bombs could ignite it when they fell. There were rocket-piercing bombs that could go straight through a landing barge. There were radio-controlled rocket bombs. There were more concrete forts, hidden pillboxes, mountains of barbed wire, with deadly electric current running through them than had ever been collected in all time. Now the glaring-eyed young men still came on, you see, because that was what they had been told to do, and they were obedient to the death. But with them, as they moved across the channel, they brought something against that wonderful defense. They brought what we now refer to in our history texts as an American way of making war. This was the technique of waiting with nerve-shattering patience until their nation, being the strongest industrial nation of all, could bring overwhelming power to bear upon a single objective. They had learned it in their own civil war long before that, when their General Grant had waited to mass unbelievable power before making the final attacks. So now, as the dawn rose up from the French coast, the peoples of the world woke up to learn that the Allies, too, had constructed a giant, the strategy of overwhelming power. 11,000 airplanes, they say, moved over the heads of the young men in the landing barges. And do you know how many airplanes is 11,000? Well, if you stood in the middle of a smooth desert with the horizon visible all around you in a great circle, as much of the sky as your eye could see in every direction would only hold 1,000 airplanes. 
And on that morning of June the 6th, 1944, the Allies had done the unbelievable. They had put into the heavens 1,100% more airplanes than any human being standing on the ground could see in the air at any one time. Now you see, the old professor will continue, gazing around that classroom full of our great-great-grandchildren. Up until that time in history, an invasion by crossing water had come to be construed as an impossibility. The Spanish Armada had tried it with disaster. Julius Caesar had nearly failed to conquer Britain at first when he landed from the sea, although there were just a handful of savages to oppose him. The Allies themselves had tried it in what they called their First World War and failed terribly at the Dardanelles. They'd had the courage to try again a generation later on the coast of Norway at a place called Narvik, and again they met with bloody disaster. But even while their enemy was shouting with glee and calling them decadent peoples, they licked their wounds and they tried again. They filled their skies at home with the smoke of 10,000 factories. They nearly drained the earth below their feet of their precious oil reserves. They dared to wreck their economic system if necessary to provide the means. And their civilians, your own great-great-grandparents, would go to little white offices where needles would be placed into their arms, their living blood drawn out, and its plasma put in little jars which were sent off to their soldiers. No one, I suppose, who didn't live through that day a hundred years ago, and of course there are only a very, very few old persons who dimly remember it now, can ever really know what it was. Although we have thousands of reels of specially preserved moving picture film and the metal recordings of General Eisenhower's proclamation, and we've already played the record of the President's speech and the words of the King of England of that time and so on. Yet, young ladies and gentlemen, I wish you especially to realize and remember this, that we wouldn't be looking at this film or hearing these century-old records. We would not be studying these documents if the vast army of young men that crossed the channel on the morning of June 6th in 1944, had not finally won their battle. You would not be allowed to see history as it really happened, and I would not be allowed to teach it as it really happened. You would be at this moment marching on a parade ground, having your muscles hardened for new wars, and having your brains bound into a metal case of narrow ideas and rules. And the word democracy would, of course, be forbidden in this classroom. And all of this, young ladies and gentlemen of the history class, is why we never permit you to forget this historical number, June 6, 1944. Because a century of history has taken place since then, you'll probably have trouble in remembering all the names and places. The names of Eisenhower and Clark and Montgomery and Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin and Marshall, perhaps you'll forget them. And such strange places as Le Havre and Dieppe and Dunkirk. They are now of interest, these names chiefly to military experts. But one thing, young ladies and gentlemen, you must know and recall forever, or you will never be considered educated men and women of this 21st century, and that is the name which we finally came to use to describe that stupendous series of battles. You must never forget that a hundred years ago today occurred the supreme hour in the War of Liberation. And then I suppose that those descendants of ours, those children who are yet to be born, will busily take down some notes in their loose-leaf folders, and they'll watch the films which at this moment have not yet been developed from the negative, and yet which were taken by the way of every phase of the landings this morning. And they will listen to excerpts from the broadcast that we have been listening to today, which have all been recorded and which will be transferred to permanent metal forms for the use of future historians. 
But perhaps it won't mean very much to those children in the future if they're happy and normal kids. This day of our world, this day might mean nothing to them, in which we have prayed ardently for the success of our arms, and during which millions of American mothers have been so overcome as to have to leave the radio and go to their bedrooms to look down at photographs of their sons. A hundred years from today, it will have become one more date in the history lesson, like 1492 and 1066 and 1914 were to us. And the moment the story of this day of days has ended, those kids will dash out into the playing field and they'll start having fun. And that's quite all right, isn't it? It's for them that the landing barges crossed the channel this morning. It is for them that our young men offered their lives because the children of a hundred years from now will be free. And now to conclude the passing parade for this evening, I would plan to read any of the bulletins which have come in during the past uh, ten minutes. However, even history does sleep at night, and owing to the time element at the various military headquarters, the 3.30 communique has concluded, probably, the official reports of great interest for this remarkable series of hours through which we have just passed. And as we close the record for the evening, then, a summary of the opinions published and broadcast so far does seem to add up, finally, to the following. That these were certainly the chief surprises, that casualties did appear to have been much lower than expected, and that the German Air Force very definitely did not go into large-scale action. Among the most interesting possibilities that began to emerge this evening after people had time to think the whole thing over has been that one of the chief reasons for the initial success of the landings may have been that our American army actually has had greater experience in this particular kind of warfare. They've been in intensive training for it for at least a year, and no other army has ever made so many amphibious landings as our own during these attacks on Morocco and Algiers and Sicily and Salerno and Anzio and Guadalcanal and all the many other islands of the Pacific. Other observers also have begun to note this evening that we might possibly have been able to strike higher up on the coast of Europe first in Holland, and that very possibly that would have brought about a much shorter war, but a far bloodier one. And it is conceived that we struck where we did because we believed that although this would take a little longer, it could be carried out with the fewest possible casualties. However, as brilliant a maneuver as the landing has been, few seem to expect it to be followed up now with sensational blows that will quickly knock out the enemy. And now it is pretty generally realized that the campaign to conquer a continent has just begun. And of course, the great question mark that emerged clearly this evening was that the German Luftwaffe might still be one of our most formidable enemies. A London commentator stated that Gerling may have merely been pretending when he called upon the Luftwaffe to sacrifice itself, as he stated in his speech of this morning, and that he probably has a much larger air force in reserve. How many planes Germany has left is the question, and upon its answer rests the fate of many a man who marches now toward Berlin. But since we're all very well informed on these details now, may I make the concluding observation that we are well informed because today has probably seen the most perfect and detailed handling of an immortal news story that has ever taken place. The news services have given the nation a magnificent demonstration of news reporting, and the radio networks have done a masterly public service. From the very moment that the networks flashed communique number one around the globe this morning, they have succeeded in sending us virtually every expert voice of the English-speaking world, 
Of course, we have been listening to all of them since very early this morning. And yet all of this stupendous story that has come to us from the radio has flowed out with dignity and with intelligence throughout the day. And I believe it will continue for the rest of the great campaign. And as a feat of engineering, by the way, and organization alone, this work of the radio networks has been one of the little victories of this time. The leading radio reporters for this day have been kings, haven't they? And prime ministers and presidents and famous generals and world leaders. And perhaps the one well-known news analyst of this time who doesn't seem to have been heard from is the new commander-in-chief of the enemy armies, our friend General Hitler. The other silent ones are the young men, aren't they, who did the fighting today. And yet, those silent ones did more today than all the spoken words of time's passing parade. And now to Mr. Carpenter for a moment, and then good night. CBS has just presented the celebrated American storyteller, John Nesbitt, in a special edition of his passing parade. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. CBS World News will interrupt the following program at any time that news developments warrant. Next, the American Melody Hour, dedicated to the druggists of America who supply you with genuine Bayer aspirin. Gentlemen, here's the American Melody Hour, bringing you the top songs of the day, so you can know them all, sing them all yourself. Stars of tonight's performance, Bob Hannon, Eileen Farrell, Evelyn McGregor, Ramo Bolognini and his lyrical violin, the Knightsbridge Chorus, and the American Melody Orchestra. up and 
down my spine Aladdin's lamp is mine The dream I dreamed was not denied me Just one look and then I knew That all I longed for Long ago was you
Though I may be far away, it's true. Say, what care I, dear? I'll get by as long as I have you. It's Bob Hannon again singing the hit song, I'll Get By. I wish I 
Bayer Company will omit all commercial credits from the American Melody Hour and will substitute for them the simple words of prayer, God be with our fighting men and their allies tonight. love for you, dear. For you, dear, fills my heart with love. The American Melody Hour continues as Bob Hannon sings the delightful song, I've Got a Heart Filled with Love. witness reports on the invasion of Europe. This broadcast will come to you from the London studios of the British Broadcasting Corporation. We now take you to London. Describing his flights in rocket-carrying bowfighters of Coastal Command. Duration, 4 minutes, 46 seconds. At 23.52, we are repeating the dispatch from Allied correspondent Ward Smith describing his flight with American airborne troops over France this morning. Duration of that talk is 3 minutes 50 seconds. It will be followed at 23.57 by a dispatch from Chester Wilmot, BBC war correspondent, and read in the studio. Stand by for Kent Stevenson. This is London calling. Here is BBC war correspondent Kent Stevenson. I've just returned from a coastal command station of the RAF. 
I feel as though I'm shouting into this microphone, trying to hear myself speak. For in my ears is still the unaccustomed roar of aircraft propellers that have kept me up in the air for half the hours of daylight. I left London early morning. My assignment was a practice flight with Coastal Command bullfighters carrying rocket projectiles. We flew before the sun while formations of Allied heavy bombers crossed us, coming from the southwest. They cruised low overhead in flights, squadrons, and still larger formations, and continuously. On the flank of one large fortress group was an American heavy with its starboard outer engine dead. The plane was wobbling. Doubtless those heavies were returning from a job of work. We circled our destination. A voice from control tower squeaked into our cockpit, Come in now. And we touched down. Then in the flying control tower, I heard the voice of a squadron leader greeting me very faintly through the roar in my ears with, Of course, you've heard the news? And that's how I did hear it. It had happened at last, and almost within sight of where I stood. Well, my visit on that coastal command station was brief. But it was long enough to see with what surprising calm the great news was received. No shouts or cheers or gestures of any kind. Not even when the station loudspeakers relayed the text of Mr. Churchill's words. Thousands of ships, thousands of frontline aircraft. The flight lieutenant by my side said, Well, well, can't like the others present. Returned to his newspaper and the happenings in Rome. Oh, they were interested, all right. They were in the front line on that station. They were eager, too. Ready to scramble at a second's notice. And that applied to each and every one. To flying officers to Sydney, Australia. The New Zealander from Wellington. To the man from Amherst, Massachusetts. And that Vancouver boy with red cheeks and Canada on his shoulder each one of them eager, on his toes, yet calm. And as I climbed into my plane to return, the signal came. And sitting next to a pilot assigned to my little job and itching to be on that job, I watched... ...button take off for action. Leading those rocket-firing bullfighters was the name among fires. Quiet men. Flying into the scrap or standing by for the word. Taking the news of D-Day calmly. Because they're ready and because they know the answer. Coastal Command of the RAF. That dispatch was from BBC war correspondent Kent Stevenson. In three minutes' time, the dispatch from Ward Smith follows. And while we're waiting for the dispatch uh, from Ward Smith, another eyewitness dispatch of the fighting that has been going on on the shores of northern France today, here is the latest news, a recapitulation of it more or less, since we haven't had any really late news in the last hour or so. The initial phase of the Allied invasion of northern France has been successfully completed. That was the news from the second communique from the Allied Supreme Headquarters issued less than two hours ago. Reports that Allied sea and airborne troops made their landings in France against little opposition were the highlights of the communique. Allied naval casualties in particular, it added, were much lighter than expected. Allied aircraft provided continuous cover for our landing parties. And tonight, despite a falling barometer and a rising wind, reinforcements are being carried across the channel while Allied troops already in France are pushing inland along a 100-mile stretch of the Normandy coast 
between Cherbourg and Le Havre. The German high command said in a special communique tonight that fighting in the Cherbourg-Le Havre area is in full swing, and the enemy communique added that new operations must be expected, although they have not developed as yet. The German-controlled Vichy radio said it was to be admitted that the Allied beachhead area has been considerably widened and that Allied reinforcements are pouring in. Tonight's communique from General Eisenhower's headquarters gave an indication of the size of the forces the Allies threw into this initial attack. The Allied command reported that more than 1,000 troop-carrying planes and gliders took part in the airborne phase of the invasion with unexpected success, in the words of the communique. The United States Navy, with two rear admirals riding in cruises and paced by the battleship Nevada, was a part of a 4,000 Allied armada which seared and blasted the German defenses before the assault troops hit the beaches of France. In Washington, earlier in the day, President Roosevelt said that up to noon Monday, Eastern wartime, U.S. naval losses were two destroyers and one landing ship for tanks. Rear Admiral Alan Goodrich Kirk, commander of one of the task forces, watched the mammoth operations from his flagship, the cruiser Augusta. Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force announced in another communique. The other cruiser was the Tuscaloosa, commanded by Rear Admiral Morton L. Dale. Satisfying curiosity about the bombing of the Pas de Calais area, which has been going on for many months, the British Air Ministry revealed that the military objectives along the French invasion coast, which RAF heavy bombers have been hammering intensely since May 7th, were German naval guns and howitzers. And now to London for the report of Ward Smith. This is London calling. Here is a dispatch from Allied war correspondent Ward Smith, who went in with the American airborne forces this morning. Tell troops, steel helmeted, black faced, festoons from head to feet, covered the long line of bucket seats on either side of the fuselage. As I climbed aboard, the co pilot, Major Cannon, who was reading a farewell message from General Eisenhower. It spoke of the great crusade and ended, let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God. As the door came to on us, sitting there in the dusk, we realized suddenly that we'd passed from one world to another. Perhaps that was partly the effect and the all red lights in the plane. We had a sinking feeling in the pit of the stomach. But that didn't last long. Somehow, we seemed to leave that behind on the ground. Almost before we realized, we were off. Here and there, lights, friendly lights, winked at us. Other planes fell into close formation behind us, left and right. As everyone adjusted parachute harness, flak suits, and laywers, our mood brightened to a spate of banter. Say, someone sang out suddenly, what's the date? I feel kind of done down there if some guy asks me and I get it wrong. We laughed uproariously at things like this. The littlest things. The silliest things. 
We exchanged cigarettes. And we talked on. But somehow, never about things that mattered. We just thought about them. Suddenly, the red lights, all the lights, in fact, went out. I wasn't consciously thinking of anything. But suddenly, I found the phrase, thy rod and thy staff, moving through my mind over and over again. Just that. And no more. It was all very odd. Then things began to happen. The paratroop battalion commander was talking quietly to his men. A final briefing. We saw fires around us below on all sides. Our bombers had done their work. Corporal Jack Harrison of Phoenix, Arizona, who was opposite me, stepped over and thrust a packet of cigarettes into my hand. You might need them on the way back, he said. Then he lined up with the others. Well, just in case Corporal Harrison happens to hear this, I'd like him to know that I'm keeping those cigarettes for him. He might like a smoke on the way home. But if he can spare them, I'd like to keep them always. That was Allied War Correspondent Ward Smith. In a few seconds' time, we will read from the studio a dispatch written by the BBC War Correspondent Chester Wilmot before he left with the Airborne Forces. He describes their final briefing. Stand by for Chester Wilmot. This is London calling. Chester Wilmot, noted Australian correspondent, is serving with the BBC's team of war reporters. Here's a dispatch which he wrote from an advanced air base in Britain just before the invasion. It is not recorded, and I'm going to read it from the BBC studio. I've come from the final briefing of the air crews and glider pilots who are taking the spearhead of the Allied invasion into France tonight. They're going to land an airborne force behind the German lines by parachute and glider. No crews in the history of the Royal Air Force have been more thoroughly briefed than these men. For this operation, aerial photography has been put to a new use. From air photographs, the Army constructed the most detailed and accurate models of the sector where the airborne attack is to be made of all the sector from the coast inland. It is an exact scale model, even to the height of the trees. The Royal Air Force borrowed this and used it to make a film. I've seen this film. It gives you the impression that you're flying over the very coast of France. But in fact, the movie camera is merely traveling over the model across the exact route the aircraft will fly. It was far better than studying ordinary aerial photographs. This way you saw features and landmarks as they came into view. You learned what to look for and when. And after the crews had seen the film twice with normal lighting, it was screened again through a blue filter, which gave a faithful representation of moonlight conditions. The crews, already knowing the landmarks, could then see how much could be picked out at night. 
Now they swear that they could never miss the dropping and landing zones where they'd put down the parachutists and gliders. The briefing of every man in the airborne force has been carried out with the same thoroughness. The days of not telling the men are gone. Every man in this force has been told the general invasion scheme, the role which his formation is to play in that scheme, the precise job of his own unit from battalion down to section. Their briefing began with an inspiring survey of the problem and a plan by the general. Then small parties of about a platoon at a time went off to the briefing hut. One I saw was typical. One wall was covered with aerial photographs of the whole area and especially the zone where this parachute unit is to land. Photographs taken from many different angles and heights. Along the other wall were maps marked to show the tasks of the various units and one big map showing the known or suspected location of the German troops in the area we're attacking. That was the report of Chester Wilmot, Australian war correspondent, which was being broadcast by the British Broadcasting Corporation in London. The coast-to-coast facilities of the Columbia Network will remain open until further notice, so keep tuned to your Columbia station for further invasion news. The American Melody Hour, presented by the makers of Bayer Aspirin over most of these stations, was interrupted tonight that we might present the special broadcast just concluded. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.